It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, it's Don here. Just a quick note from me. The upcoming episode includes some outdated language. We have left it in its historical context as it is included in the motion of the debate we are dissecting today, but we wanted to explain ourselves. Apologies for those who are offended. This is the historical territory we're in. The Cambridge Union Society gathers in its esteemed chambers. University students and guests, mostly male and mostly white, all properly dressed, at least by the looser standards of the swing in 60s are crammed shoulder to shoulder on stiff-backed benches. The air redolent of musty drapes, worn leather and wood polish, and the hot cigarette breath of the 700 attendees, eagerly anticipating the night's debates. It would have been hard to hear above the din of the crowd, students rubbernecking around the room, scanning for friends among the many faces. Outside in the other rooms, another 500 folks who couldn't fit into this room, watching the live BBC coverage that's going out to the nation. Suddenly, the sound level drops as the night's speakers file in, taking up their positions at the center of the room. Five for tonight's motion, five against it. Most notably, of course, the invited Americans. William F. Buckley, leading conservative intellectual writer and publisher. And James Baldwin, the famous author and essayist, literary voice of the ongoing struggle for civil rights in America. In 1965, February 18, 1965, the Cambridge Union Debate Society at the University of Cambridge in England, the oldest and most historic debate organization in the world, invited two famed American men of letters, James Baldwin, renowned writer of novels such as Go Tell It on the Mountain, Giovanni's Room, and at the time recently released Another Country, and William F. Buckley Jr., conservative intellectual and writer, founder of National Review. Theirs would be a debate on the motion... The American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. Spoiler, James Baldwin wins. You probably guessed that if you didn't already know. But that's not the point of all this, see? The debate is legendary, and not just among fans of argument and elocution. You can watch it on YouTube, and I hope you do, mostly to hear the eloquence of James Baldwin's proposition that America was... Well, today we have an esteemed guest to explain it all better than I can. 
Nicholas Bicola is a professor of government at Claremont McKenna College, author of The Political Thought of Frederick Douglass, and editor of The Essential Douglass and Abraham Lincoln and Liberal Democracy. But today, we're talking about his award-winning analysis of the Cambridge Union debate entitled The Fire is Upon Us, published just a few years back. Hello, Professor. Hello, Nick. How are you doing? Hi, Don. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, great. It is grainy black and white BBC footage. But when you see this debate, the tension and formality of it all, it is drama worthy of the widescreen. How is it that this event came to pass and why at Cambridge and why at that moment? Yeah, the debate really happened as a result of a a series of random events. Um, James Baldwin was touring the United Kingdom to promote the paperback release of his third novel, Another Country, and his publicist was looking for any opportunity he could find for Baldwin to speak to audiences to promote the book. And he reached out to the Cambridge Union, and and the Cambridge Union was a student-run debating society, still is. And the union president at the time, an undergraduate named Peter Fullerton, told this publicist that this was a debating society. So if Baldwin was going to come speak, he had to debate, not just give a book talk. And so they went back and forth a little bit, and Peter Fullerton and his group of other students that were running the union came up with this motion, The American Dream, is at the expense of the American Negro. This is the high tide of the civil rights movement. We're in the midst of the Selma campaign for voting rights. And so it was international news and an international topic of concern. And so they had this motion. They had this esteemed author willing to come in theory, but they had to find an opponent for him. And just again, by chance, in 1963, another Cambridge undergraduate had toured around the United States and met William F. Buckley. And so he goes to Fullerton and says, I have the perfect person to debate James Baldwin. And and Buckley was eager to debate anyone. And he was at that time, Baldwin was more famous than Buckley was. So when Buckley got the invitation, he was very eager to get on a stage with Baldwin, someone who he had criticized in print already. So it was really just like a series of events that led to this really dramatic moment. And through time, through almost 60 years now, we've had this footage of the debate that, as you said, is just so dramatic and so important in terms of not only American history, but world history. Yeah, it's a gigantic event in the annals of civil rights, really, it has become. And certainly if you're a fan of Baldwin, which most people are, circling back to what you just mentioned, at this time, we're talking about 1965, February 18th, Civil Rights Act passed July 2nd, 1964, the Voting Rights Act, 1964. I mean, we are really on the just at the tail end of the big legislation. Baldwin has been working with Martin Luther King. He's in the midst of things. The March on Washington had been August 1963. All that which comes before. But tragically, it's what happens after the debate that also speaks to his timeliness. Malcolm X is shot dead at the Audubon Ballroom February 21st, three days after the debate. Not related, but incredible timing. The Selma marchers are confronted by troopers in Alabama not a month later in March 7th. And of course, MLK three years later. And like you said, the heat of battle over the civil years. I think what might surprise people is how international all of this really was. We talk about it in such American terms, correctly, such domestic terms, but really the world was watching, wasn't it? Yeah, the world was watching. And yeah, as you say, the sort of the historical moment in which this happened just added so much weight to the event itself. Baldwin and Buckley really were embodiments of movements, right? So on that stage that night, you really had these two people who were not just important as individuals, as intellectuals, as writers, 
but they really were important as symbols in the country at the time. And they stood for so much and they stood at odds with each other, both in terms of their life experience and, and what they had to say that night. So, yeah, as you said, the moment, the historical moment is just there's so much happening. And the same night of the debate, there's a march in Marion, Alabama, just outside of Selma, and a young man named Jimmy Lee Jackson is murdered by Alabama law enforcement. That happens the same night. As you said, the Selma march three weeks later, that's the date on the Sunday, March 7th, when the Buckley-Baldwin debate transcript is published in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. It's the same day as that, that famous Selma march that many of the, the listeners will be familiar with. So it's just this moment where you couldn't have had a more dramatic moment in the history of the Civil Rights Movement for these two individuals to be clashing. And it really was, as you said, like those students in the Cambridge Union that night, they were seeing on television, they were seeing in their newspapers, all of these things happening in the United States. And so they, they really was an event that then is broadcast out to the world. And it was this international clash between these two intellectual titans. I want to get to the debate in just a moment, but this is a great opportunity just to, to check in with James Baldwin and William F. Buckley's backgrounds a little bit, just to, to orient people. Baldwin's from Harlem. He's a child of Harlem child prodigy, interesting life in so many ways. One element is his religiosity. He's a very religious kid. He's a storefront Pentecostal preacher, a gifted prodigy of that sort. Grew up on the streets of Harlem. When is it that he becomes the writer that he becomes? Yeah, that's a great question, Don. And I think that Baldwin's you know story is, of course, so complex and interesting. And, and I think in terms of thinking about the Baldwin we saw on February 18th, 1965, how he became uh, the man who stood there that night. There's a couple things I would highlight. He talks about growing up in Harlem, born of Southern parents who came to Harlem looking for, in pursuit of the American dream. Wow. It's in many ways, the debate motion that night was something Baldwin had thought a lot about. His parents, David Baldwin, his stepfather, who was the only father he ever knew, left New Orleans looking for better economic opportunity. And he really just discovered another kind of nightmare in Harlem. And so Baldwin watches his father really consumed by despair. Somebody who he says, one of the lines that always sticks with me is Baldwin says, I can never remember a single instance in which any of my father's nine children were happy to see him come home. And that's heartbreaking in so many ways, but it's less an indictment of his father than an indictment of the country, right? An indictment of, you know, a society in which that could so break down someone's spirit. That was the sort of person that he became. And so, yeah, Baldwin is somebody who is very taken by words from a very young age. He is reading all the time. He reads every book he can get his hands on. He starts writing from a very young age. He's writing his own plays. He becomes, he follows his father into the pulpit, becomes a preacher, as, as you mentioned, and and is just really taken by the power of language to connect people across time and space. This feeling that he would get sometimes in the church where he felt that he was united with the congregation in the word. And so Baldwin is, is obsessed with language, and he realizes pretty early on that he wants to be a writer. So one of the dramatic moments in his childhood is, is he's coming up, and he's, he's at this point still in the pulpit when he's a teenager, and he says to his father, I want to be a writer. And his father knew that he was leaving. He hadn't left the church yet, but he was leaving the church really to go into a new church, the church of literature, the church of, uh, of a different word, maybe. And so Baldwin, from that point on, is trying to figure out, okay, how can I do the right kind of writing that I want to do? How can I tell the story of people like my parents in a way that's free of a lot of ideology? And he was critical of a lot of other writers who were trying to do the same thing. And so Baldwin gets his start really in his early 20s as a book reviewer. He's reviewing other books to try to figure out what he doesn't want to do. And yeah, so from when he's around 
22 years old, 23 years old, he's publishing book reviews and then essays. And then he's working on this autobiographical novel, Go Tell on the Mountain, that will be eventually published in 1953. And he's, he's able to tell a story of a family much like his own. And then from there, just is on this ascent to becoming really, I think, one of the country, if not the world's most important essayists, certainly. And as a novelist, he achieves you know, a great deal of acclaim as well. Um, he spends a lot of the earlier part of his life in France, goes abroad and lives in, in Paris, has that sort of international view, as so many black Americans of the 20th century did in the arts, and gets that perspective on America that he needs in order to have an objective view of what needs to happen there. He then comes back in 1957 and becomes very involved in the civil rights movement. One of the very interesting angles of it that comes up is he is one that takes great issue between the separatists of the nation of Islam and the progressives of, of LBJ. Where does he land in civil rights? What's his outlook on it? That's a great question, Don. And Baldwin is somebody who defies easy categorization. And that was something that was a point of pride for him. He never wanted to be labeled. He never wanted to be pinned down. And so he he says early on in his one of his first publications, when he's publishing his first essay collection, he says, all theories are suspect. We must be prepared for our best theories to be pulverized by the demands of life. And I think that really is something that sticks with him through to the end of his life. He's, he's very suspicious of anything that will hem him in ideologically, theologically, and even in terms of the movement. He comes back, as you mentioned, in 1957, really, and he sees his role at that point of, of bearing witness to the revolution that's taking place. He sees the images of children braving those mobs to attend school. And Baldwin says, I felt an obligation to speak, to try to capture their experience, put it in language and get it out to the world. And then he becomes more and more, he says later, I realized that the line between witness and actor is a very thin one, right? So he becomes more and more engaged in the movement itself. And of course, his writing in those early days is a form of activism, to be sure. But as you said, he sort of gets involved. He meets Martin Luther King on that first trip to the South. He meets Malcolm X in the early 1960s. And he's always interested in two things. One is he's not necessarily trying to figure out where he fits in this kind of spectrum of civil rights activists, as much as he's trying to understand these individuals from the inside out. He's trying to get inside their head, understand how they view the world, understand their experiences, and try to communicate that to audiences. And I think that's one of the things about Baldwin that's so powerful is that when he would sit down with somebody, whether it's Martin Luther King or a white school principal in 1957 who's trying to figure out how to navigate the first black student in his school, Baldwin is really trying to take the humanity of the person sitting across from him seriously. And if he can, to see the world through their eyes and try to give his reader a sense of what the world looks like through their eyes. So I think that's something that Baldwin is always trying to do. And I think it's one of the most powerful things about his writing. He's such a, a humanist. He's so open to what makes people tick. That's the consummate writer, isn't it? He's capable of, in the moment, thinking on his feet in this regard. And that's what you see as we come up and we talk about this, uh, the debate, which is its own showcase for that kind of mind. Put a pin in James Baldwin for a moment. We'll move on to William F. Buckley. Boy, this guy was a huge character. I remember. I'm born in 61, so I grew up watching this guy on mm. the side of my life and noticing him from time to time. The quintessential wasp, Ivy League intellectual, the voice, the attitude. He was the consummate conservative in every patronizing way. Yeah. <laughs> he was just hard. For me, a kid in southern New Jersey, middle class, all that, really hard to take the guy seriously, except that you had to. He was obviously brilliant. Let's talk through some of his biographical notes and, and get a handle on him. 
son of money. He goes to Yale. The guy's on fire coming out of Yale. It's the 50s. It's McCarthyism. He clicks in. This is an important point, and I'll stop. America has been dominated by Democrats coming out of the, the Great Depression, FDR, and all of that. The 50s are the pushback against that. This is the beginning of the conservative movement against what took place then. And Buckley is perfectly placed to be the star of this, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, there's something about Buckley that is really fascinating and important. And one of those things is that he is surrounded by these kind of, as you mentioned, the term like wasp, right? He's a Catholic, though, surrounded by Protestants. He's like in the heart of the establishment from a very young age, but always poking the eye of the establishment at the same time. And so he's, yeah, as you said, he's a Republican surrounded by a lot of Democrats. In many instances, he's a Catholic surrounded by a lot of Protestants. You know, his family's America first. They're isolationists in, in a time when that was not especially popular in the crowds where they ran. So Buckley is somebody who's in this very very interesting family that very much has a commitment to training up this. He's one of 10 children training up their kids to defend a particular kind of worldview. And of all those 10 kids, Billy, as they called him, was the star in terms of using language. This is what he has in common with Baldwin, right? This is why they end up being the perfect opponents for each other in 1965. He is also obsessed with language. He's obsessed with the power of language to change the world. And he is he's very much interested and his, his parents are very devoted to making him into this sort of champion of a particular set of ideas and defending those ideas against all comers. And so, yeah, through that childhood into Yale, into his early years as a journalist, Buckley is somebody who is devoted to the use of language to defend a, a worldview that is hostile to not only socialism and communism and things like that, but also skeptical of democracy, certainly skeptical of advances in the civil rights movement. So Buckley really establishes himself as eventually one of the founding fathers of the American conservative movement. And he did that through the power of language, the power of his pen and the power of his voice. Right. It's a high-minded contrarianism. I have William F. Buckley, for many people of my age anyway, was the beginning and end of all of that stuff. He was the perfect model for how to take on things as if, oh, please, <laughs> don't, in a dismissive fashion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's something, one thing I've discovered in the years working on this book was that Buckley was somebody who, across the ideological spectrum, and even, you know, my one of my uncles would tell me about his mother-in-law, who was like a card-carrying communist, as he would say, loved William F. Buckley. So Buckley had this allure to him for even people who found his politics to be loathsome. And so and I think that's a really important part of the story. And I think yes. it's one of the ways in which I think Buckley's relevance is enduring is that he was a performer. And I think he embraced this label. He performed a particular kind of conservatism. There was a way in which he was embodying what he thought conservatism ought to be. And I mean, remember one of the famous magazine covers of him later after the debate is, I believe it's on the cover of Time magazine, it's Buckley on his moped. And the headline is conservatism can be fun. So there was a kind of lifestyle that he brought with his ideas. And so there was something about Buckley as a character that was extraordinarily important in American political culture. And I think that that was one of the reasons he was so successful in building coalitions and really becoming this really important figure on television screens for, you know, over three decades. So I think that's a really important part of the story. And I think for Baldwin, that's what made Buckley especially dangerous, is that there was something he recognized. There's something alluring about him. There's a way in which he is putting a kind of coding around what Baldwin saw as an especially nefarious politics. And so Baldwin thought it was important. A lot of everyone around Baldwin told him, don't go debate Buckley. This is not a good idea. But Baldwin thought it was his responsibility to engage Buckley and to go there and try to speak 
the truth as he saw it and, and exposed Buckley to the world. Some of the things that Buckley says in this debate date back to an editorial he wrote in National Review in 1957. It was entitled, Why the South Must Prevail. Whew, right there. Let's just highlight a few of the thoughts behind this rather short editorial, but boy, is it powerful. There's important stuff to track there. Yeah, it's one of the remarkable moments for me as a writer with this book was the juxtaposition of Baldwin deciding he needs to come home. He needs to come back to the United States after nine years abroad in 1957, late summer 1957. He is coming back to bear witness to this revolution that's taking place. And it's right at that same time, almost to the day, that William F. Buckley is sitting down to write Why the South Must Prevail. And of course, what's silent in that title is it's really why the white South must prevail. And so Buckley writes this editorial in which he says he defends explicitly what we would call white supremacy, right? He says that he basically says white people are entitled to dominate so long as they are what Buckley says is culturally superior. Now, precisely what that means is murky in this editorial, but he makes a claim in the editorial that's very clear. He's trying to defend the idea that not just not white people generally, but he really wants a small group of white people to control the South and not to allow this civil rights revolution to take place. I say that, you know, one of the slogans of the civil rights revolution was freedom now. Buckley's slogan for the civil rights movement was some freedom one day when we decide you're ready. That's really his approach, his paternalistic approach, very hostile to democracy, very hostile to individual freedom, really. And I think that's one of the things about the story that's really powerful is that Buckley is coming up with all these different ways to justify resistance to black liberation right at the very moment when Baldwin is engaging in the black liberation struggle in a more meaningful way. And so there's really this lead up to the debate that the book starts walking into the debating hall and then the reader has to wait 200 pages before we get back there because that lead up of how these two individuals came to be who they were is really the heart of the story. He basically defends the idea of voter suppression being a tool of good governance. But it's to his point, it's suppression on both sides. <laughs> this is in the debate that he believes people who don't understand the world as he sees fit, who are white, should not be voting just like black. And so there's all kinds of subtleties involved in this. That's 1957. Now we're in almost 10 years later. By the way, William Buckley will evolve just for those who are feeling the bile coming up. This guy has a huge life and he modernizes his view a lot later on. We can get to that. Let's talk about the debate. It's remarkable to see the American racial crisis removed to a completely different context. Literally, then in a fabled venue, then on the BBC, this erudite host welcoming us to the occasion. Might as well be a boxing match this guy is dressed for. It points up the uniquely American quality of the struggle of civil rights, puts a whole other light on the subject. I totally understand why both of these people would want to do this, if only to remove it from the context of the news every day in America. It was a really valuable opportunity for these two points of view. Yeah, it is. It's one of the the things about this story is Baldwin and Buckley had been circling each other in ways, large and small, for a number of years prior to the debate. And there was a way in which they were always on this collision course. And then the the accident of this invitation made it possible for them to engage, again, on this really dramatic stage, right? To be at the Cambridge Union, the world's oldest debating society. The space itself is modeled after the House of Commons. It's this training ground 
for British elites. It was very much Buckley's playground, right? Buckley grew up in spaces like that. He grew up in formal debating. You know, I say that he started formal debating when probably when he was still in diapers. And so he's ready. You know, he's he knows the dress code. He knows just the decorum and the whole thing. And Baldwin, this was a very different space for him. Baldwin was certainly a debater. He loved to argue. He loved to sit down and have a few drinks and have it out. But Baldwin was used to debating in the White Horse Tavern, you know, in Grange Village. And he was not a formal debater. And so when he walks into that space, one of the great things about this project was interviewing these students who hosted the debate in 1965. Many of them are still with us. So I was able to sit down with many of these folks. And Peter Fulton remembers, the president of the union at the time, remembers Baldwin walking in to the union before the debate and just having a moment of soaking in that context. And Fullerton remembers Baldwin asking for a private space where he could go sit and think. And I just think that there's something about that that's powerful and moving. And Baldwin knew precisely what what you're saying. This is not the 700 plus people who are gathered there that night are just a little bit of an audience. This is an international event that's going to go out to the world. And so Baldwin really had a sense of his obligation. He felt a deep sense of obligation to be there. And he felt a deep sense of obligation to say things. He says early in his speech, I am here as a kind of Jeremiah. I am here as a prophet to deliver a sermon that you don't want to hear. And it's a, you know, a sermon about the perils of white supremacy for everyone. And so, yeah, it's sort of like history is the greatest dramatist, right? I mean, you can't come up with a story more dramatic than this. You can't come up with a moment more dramatic than this. The rules of the debate, as I understand, they're given only 15 minutes to come up with this argument, right? He hadn't even seen the question before that? So the, both debaters did see the question before. So the way that the way this particular debate was structured, the motion exactly when in the timeline, invitation, opponent, motion. I found a lot of stuff in the archives as to how this all happened. But the exact order of events in terms of when they got the motion and, and when Buckley was identified as Baldwin's opponent is a little bit murky to me at this point still after all these years. But they did know the motion going in. And so one thing that's clear is that there was one student speaker on each side that was one on the Baldwin team proposing the motion and then one on the Buckley side. So the two students speak first. And then Baldwin speaks for about 24 minutes. And then Buckley actually delivers a slightly longer speech of about 29 minutes. And so the BBC recording that folks can watch online is edited down to fit within an hour. So the full audio of the debate is something that we were able to find in the process of doing the research for the book. And so that's available. We've now got it available on the Princeton University Press website for people to listen to. But one of the things that seems to have occurred is that there's no, in the negotiation process of how this debate would take place, there was no back and forth between Baldwin and Buckley allowed in the formal debate itself. And that made for a kind of a different sort of feel. It's more like two set pieces, Baldwin for 24 minutes, Buckley for 29 minutes, and then it ends. And you don't really know. And they go on to meet one more time in May of 1965 on American television. But but there's no sort of we don't know exactly what the back and forth was after the debate informally. But that's what we have in terms of the recording. Baldwin makes the argument that white supremacy the immediate and long-term effects of it damage both black and white people irrevocably. A society cannot exist or succeed anyway with this kind of systemic hatred coursing through it. But he proposes this in a very surprising way. Can you explain how his point of view takes people off guard? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that Baldwin arrives there that night, I think with, he doesn't, it's, it is the kind of thing that Baldwin, a lot of the people around him got very nervous about this. He wouldn't really 
prepare a whole lot for something like a public talk or in this case, a debate. One of the really amazing things in the archive is Baldwin's handwritten notes on hotel stationery that he brought in to the debating hall that night. You can see him pulling them out of his pocket when he starts his speech. He looks down them just once. But the really the part of his speech is he wants to draw the audience's attention to the ways in which white supremacy is destructive of both the subjugated is the term he uses and the subjugators. So the subjugated, he talks about the ways in which there's these millions of details of every single day that communicate to some people that their lives don't matter quite as much. And so he tries to talk about the impact that has on one's soul, one's very being in the world. And not only that, he really gets to the heart of the motion of this idea of the American dream by saying it's not only that, that the sense in which the world is communicating to you as an individual, all the ways in which your life doesn't matter quite as much, but you have this haunting sense that your child's life might not be much better than yours. And that really gets this intergenerational component of this idea of the American dream. So Baldwin talks about that in the first part of his speech. And then he shifts, as, as you said, in a surprising way to say, but there are these people who are the, the sort of would-be beneficiaries of white supremacy who are also being destroyed. And he gives this example that was the most dramatic example one could give in this historical moment. Sheriff Jim Clark in Alabama had been seen on televisions and newspapers around the world brandishing his cattle prod, using it against men, women, and children fighting for their rights. And Baldwin says, when you see Jim Clark using his cattle prod, What's happening to his victim is ghastly, but in some ways what's happening to Clark is much, much worse. And he explains that, and he uses the term moral life. He says, Jim Clark's moral life has been destroyed by the plague called color. Everything in Clark's sense of identity, his sense of being, his sense of reality in the world is attached to this delusion of white supremacy. He believes that his value in the world is attached to his whiteness. And Baldwin is basically saying, what could be more pathetic than that? This person is not living, this is person is not flourishing as a human being. And so Baldwin wants to draw the audience's attention to that as well. And, and this is one of the things he'll say, he doesn't say it's ex explicitly in this debate with Buckley, but he says it in writing in other contexts. He says, I accuse people like William F. Buckley who are in one way or another defending this system, not of betraying me, but of betraying people like Jim Clark. And they're really not interested in Jim Clark. They're not interested in promoting the interests of Jim Clark. They're really interested in conserving their own power. And so that's really one of Baldwin's central indictments implicitly in the debate and explicitly in a lot of the writing he does about those defending white supremacy. At some point, he really personalizes. He uses himself as a symbol. Let's hear some of this from Baldwin himself. The economy, especially of the southern states, could not conceivably be what it has become if they had not had and do not still have indeed, and for so long, so many generations, cheap labor. I am stating very seriously, and this is not an overstatement, that I picked the cotton, and I carried it to market, and I built the railroads under someone else's whip for nothing, for nothing. What was this intended to explain and argue? Yeah, so there's this other piece right in the middle of the speech. And it's actually the one moment when Baldwin 
looks down at his notes is one of the things I love about like being able to pull this archival material and put it together with these other sources like the film. The one moment when Baldwin looks down at his notes at the debate, he had underlined in his notes, and they're very brief notes, but he had underlined expense, right? So this idea of expense was really important to him and something he really wanted to say. It's in the motion and he had underlined it. And he looks down at the notes and then he says precisely that line, I picked the cotton. I built the railroad. And the way that, that those lines have carried throughout history is so powerful. Just a student this very week, one of my students, Hen and I, in my African-American political thought class, the debate came up and he quoted those lines to me, you know, as we sat there in class. And it was just such a powerful moment. But yeah, so Baldwin really wants to draw our attention to the way. And he says, as you just quoted, I mean this literally, right? I mean this literally. And so what could he mean by that? He wanted to capture the ways in which Amer- like history is present in all that we do. And so he, he wanted to capture this sense in which the legacy of the exploitation that has occurred throughout history is present in that room at the Cambridge Union that night. And so Baldwin is personalizing that in such a powerful way. He wants everyone to recognize this is not just a discussion about what happened in the 19th century. This is not a discussion about what Buckley's ancestors did. This is not this is about us now. This is about our responsibility now. And so Baldwin, I love one of my favorite lines from Baldwin that was he wrote just before the debate, actually, he says, you know, a lot of people are always taught, and this is something very relevant to contemporary debates about American history. You know, he says, a lot of people keep saying, I don't want you to make people feel guilty. You're trying to make people feel guilty for something that they didn't do. And Baldwin would always say to that, I'm not worried about your guilt. I don't have time for your guilt. What I'm asking for is your responsibility. I know you didn't do it. I didn't do it either, but we have a responsibility now in this world, the world in which we live. And so I think that's part of what Baldwin was doing there is really capturing the way in which history is present in all that we do and that we have to take responsibility for it. Right. We are trying to forge a new identity for which we need each other. He's synthesizing his view of this world. I can't get away from the fact that this is a writer looking at a subject. It's also a black man, a black American expressing his lived experience. It's a fascinating duality to this whole alive oratory that he's doing. That's what's so electric about it. And we'll talk about how this ends in a moment. It's an extraordinarily present speech is really how it feels. Anything but red, of course. But what really highlights it is the feeling like this man is living this moment in our presence. And all these ideas are alive in this moment. Hard to explain this without seeing it. And certainly must have been hard for William Buckley (laughs) to follow. Hey, folks, we'll be right back after the break with more from American History Hit. And while you're listening, make sure you never miss another episode by clicking like and follow. And while you're at it, please share this episode with a friend or family member. Thank you so much. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, 
relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As this roughly 20-minute speech ends of his, or argument ends of his, the room quite spontaneously and sincerely leaps to a standing ovation. I mean, that's jarring to see in in that context, in that place. I don't know how often that ever happened in the Cambridge Debate Union. It's a very interesting uh, surprise, right? Yeah, Baldwin concludes his speech. And yeah, it is one of the sort of norms in the union was students could stand up and be called upon by the speaker for a point of information or to ask a question during the course of somebody's speech. No one stood up during Baldwin's speech. It almost seems because it had this feel of a sermon, it it seems like it would have been profane to interrupt Baldwin as he's up there preaching. And so there's moments where the audience comes alive during the speech with laughter or in some other ways when Baldwin says particular things. But it's a very just the sort of the moment is so still through that 20 minutes. And then, as you say, the speech ends and usually in the Cambridge Union, there's polite applause at the conclusion of a speech like that. But it's very, fairly quickly, the students begin to rise in standing ovation. And Norman St. John Stevens, who's there as the commentator for the BBC, says, you know, in all the years I've known the union, I've never seen this happen before. I've never seen, you know, a standing ovation before. And, you know, it goes on for, I think, at least a minute. And Buckley, you know, says later, I knew at that point it wasn't going to be my night. And so, yeah, so it was a really powerful moment. And Stevis says this is very moving to see, you know, again, this is an overwhelmingly white space. This is an overwhelmingly elite space. And it was an over, it was actually quite a conservative space in terms of British domestic politics. And so Buckley reads the audience in one way and, you know, we, we might read it in another. But there's a, it is a very powerful moment because it wasn't necessarily a foregone conclusion that the audience would receive Baldwin in that way. Um, indeed, some of the people who witnessed the debate wondered if they would receive him in that way. Yeah. I want to underscore the, the theme that he has established here. There is scarcely any hope for the American dream because the people who are denied participation in it by their very presence will wreck it. But the note that's struck is one of kind of a superhuman empathy, right? That's how he's approaching this, trying to see both sides without neutralizing his attack on what is wrong. It's a fascinating line he's walking the whole way through. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that's really remarkable about Baldwin is he he could display this radical empathy and really try to, and this is the, you know, to the core of his being as a human and as a writer, he really wants to understand how somebody came to believe what they believe and really to resist 
the temptation to just reject one's opponent as merely evil, right? Because in some ways that's too easy. What he wants to get us to think about are the ways in which we construct our identities fundamentally out of a desire to find safety. And he says we do that all too often We rely on status in order to make ourselves feel safe. We rely on some mechanism to make ourselves feel superior to other people in order to find safety for ourselves. And what Baldwin is challenging us to do is to do something better than that, right? To not rely on status to define our own identity, to try it, as you said earlier, to forge an identity together in which we don't need to otherize and we find a way to live together in a way that respects our common humanity and our dignity. What was Baldwin's view of Martin Luther King's techniques, his outlook? So Baldwin and King had a a really interesting relationship. I think in many ways, Baldwin says early on he meets King and it's one of these things where he's trying to do this Baldwin thing of getting to the human being right behind the symbol. And King was really, you know, he was hard to get to know in that way for a lot of people. And so Baldwin kind of one of the things he describes is like he wants to understand how King, who people forget how young King was, right? He's so young, you know, when all this is happening. And Baldwin is trying to understand, like, how as a young man are you able to bear the responsibility that's on your shoulders? And he has a hard time getting to that aspect of King's personality. But what he says about King is that he sees King as somebody who is really able to do this thing that Baldwin always admired from his days as a preacher through to the end of his life as a preacher of another sort, of King. He thought King was so good at sending a message out to an audience and then like receiving back energy from the audience. And he was so good at capturing, again, like how do you unite in the word, right? Not just the word in a scriptural sense, But how do you find a connection with your audience in a way that you're actually doing this thing of changing souls that you're setting out to do? And so Baldwin really found a lot. He saw King as somebody who actually lived by the creed that he professed, which is very rare. You know, Baldwin was around around a lot of preachers who he thought didn't do that. Fundamentally, he saw himself as aligned with King in most aspects of, of the revolution. I ask that because it seems like the theme that we're talking about is in antithesis to a more violent outlook. He had to have sensed the tremendous violence at hand. So much goes down in the next couple of years or in a couple of days, as far as Malcolm X is concerned. I wonder, the, the FBI had a huge thick file on Baldwin. He was aware of the danger that he was under and whether violence could actually fix anything at this point. Yeah. Three days later, as you mentioned, Malcolm X is killed. The Medgar Evers had been killed in June 1963. Somebody else who Baldwin admired very much. So many others had been killed that are lesser known to history. But Baldwin is somebody who, yeah, he sees, of course, the brutality around him, the brutality around throughout history. He talks about the catalog of disaster is one of the phrases he uses during the debate, the sort of all the things I could quote at you in terms of the violence, the actual violence that has been done over the course of American history. But yeah, and Baldwin is very much of the mind when it comes to the question of violence as a form of resistance. He always treats that question as fundamentally a pragmatic question, to be honest. He's never somebody who advocates violence, but he says, like, I could understand some justified uses of violence in this situation, but I'm reticent to endorse that, of course, as a matter of practice. It's not a practical 
decision. So when he engaged with people like Malcolm X, when Malcolm would use language, like Malcolm himself was not a violent person, when he would use language that indicated a comfort with violence that was certainly not present in in King's rhetoric, Malcolm would say things like, look, like throughout American history, some of the most admired heroes are people who were violent people, the American revolutionaries and so on and so forth. And Baldwin would say things like, I think we should aspire to something better than that. So like when, when Malcolm would say, Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. And Baldwin would say, I find Patrick Henry to be a thoroughly mediocre man. I want to aspire to something better. It's hard with Baldwin. He engages with Malcolm. He engages with King. And he's always there. I love this description of Baldwin that Cornell West uses. He calls him the Black American Socrates. Baldwin is this kind of philosophical character who wants to ask a lot of questions. One of the lines I always quote from Baldwin is, he says, the responsibility of the artist is to drive to the heart of every answer to expose the question that it hides. And so that's the way he was. I mean, not that he couldn't take a position on something, but he always wanted to ask us to to dig deeper and ask these really hard questions. In the face of this indictment of of systemic racism and the generational effect it has had, up stands William Buckley for his turn. He makes the argument, predictable one, in my opinion, far less eloquent, much less personal, that social and economic improvement for African-Americans must be generated from within the economic and democratic mechanisms, the means at hand, the so-called American dream. Right from the outset, he proposes to treat his opponent, Baldwin, as a fellow American, equal footing instead of this with unctuous servitude. Where does he go from there? What's he trying to describe as a solution to the civil rights dilemma? Yeah, so Buckley stands up, and this is, I think, even for Buckley's greatest defenders, this is not his finest moment. I think he realizes that the room is a little bit hostile, or at least been won over by Baldwin. And he says later that he felt like he could have given a little in order to win some more votes. But he doesn't. He goes in the opposite direction, which I think in many ways is keeping with his approach. And he says later that he's very proud of that fact. He says, I didn't give them one goddamn inch, (laughs) is the way he puts it. And so Buckley gets up there. And and as you said, he, he says, look, the danger here is that Baldwin is proposing a revolutionary program. He's proposing to overthrow nothing less than Western civilization. He says he's here to overthrow the faith of our fathers, right? He says the faith of our fathers is, you know, and he meant when the hour in that sentence is he's referring to the elites in that room, like we share a common faith and that Baldwin is a threat to that. So yeah, Buckley takes this approach of painting Baldwin as a dangerous radical and saying progress is being made in all these different ways and we need to just stay the course and that eventually things will get better. And so Buckley's approach is to attack Baldwin as a person, attack Baldwin, what he takes to be Baldwin's worldview, and to defend the system, right? Buckley, from a very young age, when he's at Yale, he basically says to his fellow elites as they're graduating, when he gives a speech right before his graduation, he says, our responsibility is to protect this oasis of freedom from those who would have us overthrow it for something they promise will be better, but in fact will be worse. And so his positioning almost always is he's never really, from those early days, he's never especially good at defending the details of his worldview. That's never really his primary project. His primary project is always to stand up and defend the fortress, right? He's there to take on those who he sees as threats to everything he's been taught is valuable about American society, about Western civilization. And he definitely had established very clearly 
that Baldwin, he views Baldwin as one of those threats. And so that's kind of the approach he takes in the speech. And then he gets more and more, I think, as he senses the audience is laughing at him at points he doesn't want them to laugh. Either there's some hissing and booing at various points in the debate. And so Buckley just gets more and more radical over the course of his speech until by the end of it, he's essentially speaking in not so vague terms about a race war. So it's a very, as you said, not his best moment, convoluted speech. He goes in a lot of different directions. And, and certainly does not try to win many votes. That's when his style kicks in. You saw it on Firing Line. You know, for, he was the longest running, a single host for one news show of all time, 30 years or something like that. And he would just lean back in his chair and rely on his lockjaw accent to infer that he knows better than you. And there's a lot of that in that debate, it seems. It's condescending to even the, the college students who are in that room, I, I think. He's just uh, had a moral superiority that comes through everything saying. But at the essence of what he's trying to explain is there's already the means that have already proven to improve lives for black Americans. We need to rely on those further and innovate them even, as I said before, maybe voter suppression is not such a bad thing. He's saying (laughs) stuff like that. It's a pretty extraordinary thing. But I agree with you. It was convoluted for me. I was hard to figure out exactly what he was saying, but it, it comes through those ideas anyway. Yeah, just really quick, Don, on Buckley's approach, I think you're you're capturing it really well, is that Buckley is, and again, this is where performance and substance come together in such an important way. Buckley performs this I know better than you do thing. That's his thing. And he was, you know, a lot of people read him as this very sophisticated intellectual, in part because that was the role that he played so well. But that performance is deeply connected to the substance of what you're highlighting, which is his deeply anti-democratic character, right? He is saying, and the audience thinks he's joking when he says that the solution in the South is not to enfranchise African-Americans, it is to disenfranchise more white people. And they laugh, they think he's making a joke, and he's quite serious. He had been arguing that for about a decade. So he says, I think that the solution is to disenfranchise 65% of the white people who are currently voting. And so he, he has this idea, and this goes way back to his childhood. He was taught, one of his father's friends was this guy, Albert J. Nock, who taught the Buckley children like about this idea of the remnant with a capital R, which is like this small group that really ought to be entrusted with power because they are the ones who know and they are the ones who can direct society in the right way. And Buckley, from a very young age, was told, you are one of the remnant, right? And so he is there to say to this audience, you can also be in the remnant too with me. We need to protect civilization, right? This term that he would use again and again in the context of racial politics, both domestically and internationally, we need to protect civilization. And that was the kind of, and it was very explicit in terms of the racial politics of that. And it was something that he was deeply committed to. And that's on display at Cambridge. There's a quote from Buckley. Let me just find it now. Here, let's listen to this. We must also reach through to the Negro people and tell them that their best chances are in a mobile society. Uh, And the most mobile society in the world today, my friends, uh, is the United States of America. Uh, The most mobile society in the United States uh, in the world is the United States of America, and it is precisely that mobility uh, which will give opportunities to the Negroes which they must be encouraged to take. Yeah, you could find many examples of that, of course. But as a policy, as an outlook in general, sociologically speaking, or or politically certainly, it's full of flaws. And over time, he, as I said before, 
evolved these views beyond just this pragmatic view of how to operate? Yeah, and I think Baldwin, and this is one of the things, if the debate was structured differently and Baldwin had an opportunity to respond to Buckley, what might he have said? This is an interesting counterfactual to ponder. But I think that Baldwin would concede economic and sociological points that Buckley was trying to make and yet still say to Buckley, what you're trying to convince this audience is that this sort of proposal of actually including people in a meaningful way in our political and economic life beyond what we're currently doing is not the threat that you're painting it to be. Buckley was trying to say to the audience, look, Baldwin's agenda here is to overthrow what is good in American society, everything that we hold dear. And I think Baldwin's response to that is, is that really what you think I'm doing, number one? And what is it that you're really trying to protect? Is what I'm proposing really a threat to a mobile society? Is that what you really think I'm after? Of course, Baldwin would love a mobile society. A society that was meaningfully mobile would be, that was part of his American dream for sure. So Baldwin, I think, is asking us to reimagine these categories in ways that are more inclusive. And also, you know, I'm not saying that he doesn't want to, it's just a story of like include us in the system that currently exists. Baldwin was, I think, a radical thinker in all sorts of ways, but I don't think he was a radical thinker in the ways that Buckley was painting him as. As I mentioned at the top, he wins Buckley. I mean, there's a very perfunctory vote taken. <laughs> it's over in a second. 500-something versus 100-something vote among those union members, and that's it. Baldwin wins. So let's wrap this up with the aftermath. You mentioned before Baldwin and Buckley debate again on the David Susskind show. Yeah. I never saw this as a child. It was never rebroadcast as the BBC version, was it? No, no. It's one of these things that I, I spent a lot of time, you know, like looking for either an audio recording or a video recording. And essentially what I found out from various museums and historians of television that the Susskind show was in the practice of taping over, <laughs> you know, they would, they would record it and then they would tape over episodes. There are existing episodes of, of you can find some, you actually find uh, Martin Luther King's first nationally televised interview with David Susskind in the 1950s that you can find that online. There's various things online. But yeah, this encounter between Baldwin and Buckley and that was taped in May 1965 is apparently lost to history. The Susskind archive has a kind of like notes from the show that I was able to pull together with fan letters in each of the archives and various historical accounts. But yeah, if anyone finds it, anyone listening to American History Hit, if anybody finds a recording of the <laughs> Susskind show with Baldwin and Buckley, please let me know. I don't want to brag, but I was David Susskind's waiter oh, in wow. the restaurant that he used to go to in New York all the time. In the 80s, it was funny. So Buckley goes on to run for New York City mayor that fall, November 1965, beaten handily by John, the handsome John Lindsay. But he starts his own syndicated TV show, Firing Line, and it becomes the longest running single hosted issue show in history, 1966 to 99. Baldwin never was on the show? Yeah, Baldwin was never on the show. I and I was able to go to the Firing Line archive. So Buckley's archive, his papers are at Yale, and the Firing Line archive is at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. So I was able to go in there. Because, you know, there were people who remembered, people I interviewed for the book uh, who were in the Buckley circle who thought, oh, yeah, he must have invited Baldwin on. But there's no evidence that he did in the Firing Line archive. And I think I'm not totally surprised by that. I think especially because of the encounter they had on television in May 65, I think that it was much more Buckley's night on that occasion. And I think it was a very... It was a difficult night for Baldwin in a lot of ways. And I don't think that Baldwin, it would have been interesting if he was invited on Firing Line, but he never did appear in that show's run. It lives on. Obviously, I am encouraging everyone to watch this on YouTube. It really is interesting. And it takes about an hour to go through, but it's a really worthwhile thing to see. 
Let's go out with James Baldwin. He returns to south of France and resumes his writing career. It's a legendary career. And he dies in 87, still a relatively young man. An extraordinary episode from an extraordinary life and a really interesting window through which to look at this. Both men, really, but certainly James Baldwin and this, an innovative view of the racial situation in America. Yeah, absolutely. We're celebrating the Baldwin centennial this year. So Baldwin uh, was born in August 1924, and, and here we are 100 years later. And I think Baldwin, he there's so much to say about his legacy, but I think Baldwin is somebody who, whether one's encountering him through his novels or through his activism or through his essays, he's somebody who you know really does stand out to me in not only American history, but in world history. As you said earlier, Donna, a humanist in the most meaningful way. I mean, he's somebody from his earliest publications in the 1940s through the end of his life. He says that my lodestar is the human being and the freedom and fulfillment of the human being. And essentially his project was to try, not his project, but really his ethos, right, was to try to engage with himself and to try to engage with other people in a way that took seriously our dignity as human beings, our aspirations as human beings in the deepest possible way. And so I think that Baldwin is somebody who, you know, especially, you know, as we are in this 100th year of Baldwin's legacy, you know, his 100th birthday year, I think it's a great opportunity for us to engage a new generation. One of the things I love with students and with audiences that I have an opportunity to speak to about the book is just getting folks introduced to Baldwin and they want to engage Baldwin. They want to sit down with his writings. I encourage people who are more of the YouTube generation, you can go on YouTube and watch footage of James Baldwin, not only in this debate, but doing interviews and other conversations. And um, I defy the listener, the watcher, to not be transfixed by somebody who I think was really a profound voice in our history who should be celebrated. A superstar and a timeless one. He could have lived any time and been what he was at that time. Nicholas Piccolo does his work at the Claremont Mechanic College, a professor of government. The book we're talking about must be on your shelf. It is already on mine. The Fire is Upon Us, published just a few years back, but won all sorts of awards. Thank you so much, Professor. I'm so glad to meet you and so really important stuff to talk about. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Don. This has been great. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening to American History Hit. You know, Every week we release new episodes, two new episodes, dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of content from mysterious missing colonies to powerful political movements to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great, but you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share it with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.